I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Uh, the case we're exploring today has been given many names. The Clear Lake Massacre, the Clear Lake Murders, the Ugly Duckling Murders, the Miss Irresistible Murders. Uh, but, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, it is, <laughs> unfortunately, the story of the senseless murder of four teenagers um, and their family's three-year hunt for justice and some very interesting composite sketches. In the summer of 2003, Clear Lake City, just outside of Houston, Texas, 18-year-old Tiffany Rowell was living a fairly carefree life. She'd graduated from high school the previous year and was working as a waitress in a local bar, alongside her best friend, Rachel Colarutis. Tiffany's mother had passed away a few years earlier, and her father had remarried and moved in with Tiffany's stepmother, leaving her to live in the family home alone, and it seems that everyone was pretty happy with this situation. And although her father came to check in on her regularly and the neighbours kept an eye on things, the house became known as somewhat of a party house, which I think is fair enough if you've got like an 18-year-old having the run of a family home. Yeah. <laughs> and along with her best friend Rachel, Tiffany's boyfriend, 19-year-old Marcus Priscilla, and his cousin, 21-year-old Delbert Sanchez, also spent a lot of time at the house. Uh, some reports say Rachel had even moved in with Tiffany, but others say she just hung out there a lot. So when Friday, July 18th, 2003 came around and the group planned a party for the evening, uh, inviting all their friends over, nothing seemed out of the ordinary about that. Um, that was until one of Tiffany's friends, who is only known as Brittany, um, her identity is protected uh, for reasons that we're not really clear on. Um, but so Brittany, uh, came around to the house with some other people who were invited to the party at around 6 30 PM and nobody answered the door, but they could hear the TV, uh, playing inside the house. I just love that the house parties start at like 6 30. Cause that's like my kind of party. Cause then I can be like, yep, done. Leave at like 10 o'clock and go oh, home. Yeah. Party and in the evening everyone. in bed by 11. That's how you do it. Yes. <laughs> And and by party, I mean have have a nice nice selection of cheese and crackers and <laughs> listen to some some music and then immediately leave. Or just eat loads of junk food and play board games. Or that, yeah. Or that. Which we did last Christmas and was so much yes. fun. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. Uh eventually they entered the house and the group found a bloodbath. Tiffy and Marcus were on the sofa and Adelbert sat on the floor in front of the sofa and all of them had been shot dead and there were no signs of a struggle. A blood trail led around the back of the sofa to where Rachel had managed to crawl before she finally died. Uh, Brittany and the others ran back out of the house and called the police. The local community were shocked and heartbroken. This was a safe city described as the kind of place that any family would want to raise their children. Everybody loved Tiffany and Rachel. They were known for their kindness and their generosity, and Adelbert had only just moved to Clearwater City a couple of months earlier. Nobody could really understand why anyone would want them dead. And the police investigation began, and they quickly found there were no signs of forced entry. None of the neighbours had 
really seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. But they did, however, find bullets from two different guns, suggesting that there had been two shooters and that they were known to the victims and that they'd been invited into the house because, yeah, no struggle, no forced entry. Yeah. Uh, Autopsies of Tiffany and Rachel revealed they'd both been shot multiple times in the genital area. Now, if this was a male shooter, that could suggest a hatred of women. But if the shooter was a female, it could suggest jealousy. Tiffany, Max and Adelba all died from multiple gunshot wounds, but Rachel had managed to crawl away and was trying to dial 911. But she only got as far as dialing 901. And it was only during the autopsy that police learned that Rachel's cause of death was actually blunt force trauma to the head, not gunshot wounds. There was very little in the way of forensic evidence and no indication of a motive. Um, The only leads police could find was that Marcus had been dealing drugs on the side out of Tiffany's home and his cousin Adelbert had links to organized crime in Mexico, but um, had moved to Clearwater City to try and get away from from those organized crimes. Um, Yeah. So for a long time, police theorized that this had been a drug deal gone wrong, which, you know, it makes sense. Whoever the shooters were, they'd been invited into the house and were known to the four victims. Although the neighbors hadn't really seen or heard anything out of the ordinary that day, one of the neighbors had seen a couple they didn't know walking down the street that afternoon. Initially, they hadn't thought anything of it. You know, it was just a quick glance out their window. But this neighbor would turn out to be a vital witness in the case. The neighbor sat down with a sketch artist and produced the artist produced two composite sketches of the people the neighbor had described as older teenagers, male and female, both white, both dressed in black. Neither of them particularly stood out, except that the female had unusually large eyes. Huh. Other than that, they were your pretty average white couple. And the female had been wearing a bandana. Um, and in the Forensic Files episode on this case, uh, which we'll link to the YouTube mm-hmm. page in the show notes, the sketch artist actually talks about how that makes it more difficult when identifying a woman from a composite sketch because with women, hair is usually like a very defining characteristic. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like, you wouldn't think that necessarily, but once you sort no. of like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like I've got fringe and long hair. So if I had all my hair scraped back, I'd look very different. Yeah, no, totally. And especially like a fringe changes like the shape of mm-hmm. your face. And also like if, you know, some a woman, a white woman with, you know, almond shaped eyes and straight hair versus the same description with curly hair could look like a yeah. totally different person, you know? Yeah. So these sketches were distributed around the local area, but nothing came of them, and eventually the case went cold. But the families weren't about to give up. Over the next couple of years, Rachel's father, George Colorudis, raised enough money to have the sketches put up on every single billboard in the Clearwater City area. Uh, It was said that you couldn't drive in or out of the city without seeing at least one of these billboards. George, with the help of the local community also managed to raise a $100,000 reward for information leading to a conviction. Uh, And on July 8th, 2006, 
Crime Stoppers received an anonymous tip from a male caller who claimed to know the identity of one of the murderers. The caller said that he had been in rehab with a woman who had confessed to the murders. Uh, she had also told him that one of the victims had managed to crawl away and had died while trying to call 911. So in every major police investigation, police have to be selective about what information they give out to the public and the press when appealing for help. They always have to hold something back. And this is for sort of two main reasons. Firstly, if they give out all the information, it leads to false confessions and time wasters. People insert themselves into the case. Um, this is known as a voluntary false confession. It is unprompted by police and does happen for a variety of reasons, depending upon the circumstances of the case. So sometimes it's like, you know, like you call your tip line crazies. It's people who would just, they say, just insert themselves into the case. Other times it could be, um, you know, or it could, you know, just for the notoriety and things like that. And the other reason is so that, they have information that only they and the murderers know. So they know if someone mentions that that detail that they've held back during questioning, they either are the murderer or they have intimate knowledge of the crime, so are likely close to the murderer. And in this case, one of the pieces of information that police held back and never released to the public was the fact that Rachel was trying to dial 911 when she died. The anonymous caller named the woman he met in rehab as Christine Paylilla. Christine Paylilla was born in March 1986 on Long Island, New York. Her mother, Lori, was a stay-at-home mom and her father, Charles, was a construction worker. But when Christine was just two years old, her father died in an accident on a construction site. Following her father's death, her mother turned alcohol and drugs to cope and subsequently lost custody of Christine and her older brother, who moved in with their grandparents. At the age of five, Christine's hair began falling out and she was diagnosed with alopecia. She also had very poor vision and wore, quote, jam jar glasses. And Christine was bullied mercilessly at school. Is jam jar glasses, is that a phrase used in the US? I, would, I think you'd more commonly hear um, Coke bottle glasses. See, that was in, like, one of the videos I watched on this case, and I was like, okay, but I'm just going to call them Jam Jar <laughs> because that's what I know them as. That's interesting. Yeah, so really yeah. thick lens. Yeah, yeah, like, really, really thick. <laughs> and also, we don't really get Coke bottles, as in, like, the glass bottles over here anymore, well, or we haven't for a long time. That's the thing. We haven't either, so. but somehow the phrase is sort of stuck in the vernacular. So, there you go. This has been ling linguistics corner. <laughs> yeah, we just make that a regular segment. I mean, I would greatly enjoy that because I love <laughs> this kind of stuff, but that might just be me. <laughs> so the bullying continued through school and Christine struggled to make friends. When she was a freshman in high school, so is that around about age 14? Yeah, 14, 15. Uh, Christine's mother managed to beat her addiction and regain custody of Christine and her brother. She remarried and the family moved to Clear Lake City, Texas. Christine's family were worried that the bullying would continue after they moved, but that didn't happen. Christine was befriended by two of the most popular girls in school, Rachel Colarutis 
and Tiffany Raoul. Rachel and Tiffany were a year older than Christine, and they took her under their wing. Because of her alopecia, Christine had lost most of her hair, her eyebrows and eyelashes. So Rachel and Tiffany taught her how to draw her on like realistic looking eyebrows and do makeup that would like flatter her. And they even bought her like a really nice wig with their own money. Wow. According to Christine's mother, Lori, this was the happiest time in Christine's life. Her self-confidence sort of jumped leaps and bounds and she constantly talked about Rachel and Tiffany. She was even voted Miss Irresistible by her classmates. Can we just talk for a minute about like 16, 17 year olds voting in a Miss Irresistible competition and how weird and gross that is? It is not a sort of typical superlative that you would find. Like, I don't know. I don't think it would be a competition necessarily. I think it's like you know, voted most likely to succeed, that sort of thing. But that's the normal ones, you see. Not like... Yeah. That's so, like, most likely to succeed, most likely to do this. Yeah, like class clown. Yeah, I mean, we... I'm saying we don't do that. It's eight... No, it isn't. 13 years (laughs) since I (laughs) left school. But I left at 16 and went to to sixth form college because it's slightly different here. Yeah. So we had a yearbook, but it was literally like, it was like a picture of everyone and what your goal is or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, 15 year old me sat there going, fuck knows, uh, to travel. So, <laughs> but we never had like the voting thing. No. That's, that's the thing I find weird. And the fact that it's a, a miss irresistible and to me that just like feeds into the whole like sexualization of school kids no absolutely like i we didn't we had like little senior blurbs or whatever because in in my high school the only classes that would or the only people who would get like individual pictures in the yearbook were seniors um and so we got like our photo and i don't even know if we got text i it's been so long <laughs> um and like i mean i binned my yearbook so i was like we didn't this has no meaning to me we didn't even get our yearbooks at the end of the year we got them the next fall <laughs> so they were totally useless um they got mailed to us <laughs> so you didn't get people to like no them. <laughs> that was i thought that was the whole point it is it was so stupid because, like, even <laughs> even not as seniors, like, I actually didn't get my sophomore year yearbook because I didn't realize um, that you were supposed to go pick it up in October in the gym. So, like, I just don't have one for <laughs> that year so of high school. So did you have a yearbook for, like, every year of high school? Yeah. Oh, we just had one for, like, the year that we left. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I-, I was supposed to have one for <laughs> But, like, we did the whole signing yearbooks thing in in middle school, and I was actually on the yearbook uh, team in ninth grade. I was (laughs) one of the photographers. Well, you just used to bring in, like, an old school shirt and some pens, and everyone signed it. See, that's, I think that's more fun. That's the thing. Like, yearbooks should be just, like, fun and, like, oh, this is a little snapshot of this time in our lives, whatever. It should not be oh this 16 year old girl was 
irresistible. Yeah. And what's, because the age of consent's like, is that 18 in most states? Um, yes, unless I mean, you're both underage. Um, then it's kind of fuzzy. Yeah. But I know we talked about this in the Skidmore episode, because we did, yeah. But that was like regarding child marriage as well. So, <laughs> yeah. a bit different. Uh, but, um, it still feels very weird, even if they're like 16, 17. I mean, the age of consent here is 16. Yeah. But even at that age, it still feels very, very. No, it just doesn't seem like. To me. Uh, like, yeah. Don't label children with things like that. Yeah. That's the thing. Until you're 18, you are a child. Yeah. So just don't. Let's not. Please stop doing that. Yeah. So moving on from skeevy yearbook things. Um, So for a couple of years, at least, Christine was thriving. Um, Tiffany and Rachel graduated, and although they all stayed friends, Christine was left alone at school for her senior year until she met Christopher Lee Snyder. Christine met 21-year-old Chris when she was 17, going back to that age of consent thing there. Um, And by all accounts, it was a very messy and abusive relationship on both sides. Chris Snyder was known locally for his drug problems and run-ins with the law, and none of Christine's family or friends were particularly happy about the relationship. Yeah, and I couldn't find, like, a definitive source on this, but it seems to be, like, okay, so obviously she was still alone at school, even though she was, like, dating him, but it seems to be that her schoolwork suffered and she kind of lost interest and basically it was all about this relationship. Yeah. Um... But despite the fact that they didn't really like Chris, Rachel and Tiffany still included Christine in their plans. They still stayed friends with her, although they always tried to tell her that she could do better. And I mean, that is what girls do. Yes. Yeah. If your boyfriend's an asshole, we will tell you. (laughs) Doesn't work usually, but we'll still tell you. Yeah, no. (laughs) It, It takes three years for the message to get through, but whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, so their words fell on deaf ears because young love and all that. And eventually Christine began experimenting with drugs and became more and more isolated from her friends, no matter how hard they tried to include her in things. And so fast forward to July 18th, 2003, at approximately half past three that afternoon, Tiffany and Rachel had invited Christine to the party. They were having that evening, so they weren't too surprised to show her, see her show up at the door that afternoon with Chris. So, according to Christine, she and Chris held Tiffany, Rachel, Marcus, and Adelbert at gunpoint. Christine forced Rachel to go around the house collecting all of the money, the valuables, and drugs, uh, while Chris waited in the living room with the other three. Once they had the money and the drugs, the couple shot Tiffany, Marcus, and Adelbert where they sat on and in front of the sofa and Rachel where she stood next to the sofa and the couple then headed for the door. But before they could leave, Christine decided to go back and check that the four of them were actually dead. After all, they could identify her and Chris. So she found that in the few seconds 
between them leaving the living room and getting to the door, Rachel had managed to drag herself behind the sofa and was trying to call for help. And out of bullets, Christine hit Rachel in the head repeatedly with the butt of her gun. And according to Christine, Rachel's final words were, why are you doing this? In total, 21 shots were fired, with Tiffany and Rachel being shot six times each. Later, when the police searched the house, they found Rachel's wallet, and in it were photos of the three girls together. Um, Christine and Chris then left the house and walked back to Chris's car, uh, which was parked just down the street, and this is when the neighbor saw them. Um, and then Chris dropped Christine off for her shift at Walgreens, where she worked at the makeup counter. Uh, when would-be partygoers found the bodies of the four victims and word spread around town that they had been murdered, Christine began acting absolutely heartbroken and literally cried the whole night. She even ended up sleeping in her mother and stepfather's bed with them because she was so inconsolable. And one thing I didn't put in the script but is maybe worth noting so the neighbors obviously saw them walking down the street but if you're wondering why nobody heard 21 gunshots mm. it is um generally accepted that everyone just thought it was someone doing diy because mm. from a distance it sounded like hammering, hammering. and so in like retrospect everyone's like oh, oh shit fuck. <laughs> that's what it was they just because it was a nice place and that wasn't you didn't expect. Yeah. If you heard banging, you don't expect it to be gunshot. And I could also. You expected it to be someone working on their house. Yeah. I could also see if it, because it's quite, there were quite a lot of shot shots. Mm -hmm. And so 21 shots, if they were fired in like quick succession, which I'm guessing they probably were, it would yeah. sound like from a distance, potentially someone. Yeah banging a hammer just really loudly yeah so christine behaved pretty much as anyone who had just lost their best friends would be expected to behave and nobody had any suspicions about her the following year christine and chris broke up when he was arrested and jailed for car theft in kentucky christine went to rehab and got clean for a while in rehab in rehab she met stanley justin rott known as Justin to most people, who was a recovering heroin addict. And the two began a relationship and were married the following year in March 2005. And it was around this time that Christine inherited $360,000 from her father's life insurance following his death when she was only two years old. So the couple bought an apartment together and all was well for a few months. On the second anniversary of the murders, Christine was watching TV when she saw uh, the composite sketches based on the neighbor's witness statements. She asked her new husband if he thought the sketch looked like her, and it was at this point that she told him about her role in the murders, uh, although she put most of the blame on Chris Snyder. For a long time, there was speculation that Justin was the anonymous man who phoned Crime Stoppers, but it was later determined that it wasn't him. Panic quickly built in Christine over the next few months, and she became more and more paranoid that the police would track her down. By November, she had sold their apartment, and the couple had moved into a motel room in downtown San Antonio. They had also both relapsed. Yeah, 
And um, those police sketches are interesting, to say the least. Okay, so I haven't actually I'm... looked at them. Where do I find them? Um, Clearly. If you just Google. Because they are really famous now. And, I mean, we talked a lot. Actually, in our first episodes about mm-hmm. um, sketches and identifying people from the sketches, didn't we? Because I don't see as how... Sometimes I'm like, how did you get that from that? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's not a fault of the, the witness or the artist. But I'm also, sometimes I'm kind of like, okay, you identified this person from this drawing. How? And yeah. And going back to the Forensic Files episode, the sketch artist is like, talks about how like she got really excited and she was in her office and she was like, yeehaw, we got him. And I was like, they don't look the same. No, they don't. Yeah, so I'm just looking at them now. It just don't really, they don't look like humans so much. I mean, obviously, yeah, that's the thing. She looks slightly... Like, an, like a, you know, stereotypical like gray. alien type thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I know that was always compared, it's like compared to her driver's license photo, which is where she's got her makeup done really nice and she's got a wig on and everything. And so it is obviously different. And at the time of the murder, she was like very, very deep into drugs. Uh-huh. But they still don't look alike. No. But they were the thing that, you know, helped helped this anonymous call identify. Yeah. So they um, they did serve a purpose. Yeah. Very important purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so for eight months, the couple barely left their motel room and were living off of Christine's inheritance. Spending what she estimated to be about a thousand dollars a day on heroin. How do you spend a thousand dollars a day on heroin? It's the cheap drug. Holy shit. How much heroin were they doing? A lot. <sighs> How did they fucking... Is heroin cheap? I thought heroin was like more expensive. No, because that's what... That's why... Um, there's this huge heroin epidemic in the U.S. right now because all the people who got hooked on OxyContin and and prescription pain meds buy heroin because it's way more affordable to get that, and it's the same kind of high. Yeah, but you're using the American for-profit healthcare system as a comparison, so anything is cheaper. I mean, no, even just buying pills on the street. Oh. Yeah. Because the street value of pills is oh. a lot higher than, like, black tar heroin. Yeah. I mean, it is a lot cleaner to take pills as well. You don't have the same worry. I mean, obviously, you don't, unless you know your dealer really, really well, and they're, like, your best friend, and they're not going to rip you off. Yeah. You have no idea if those drugs are what they say they are. Yeah. I mean, you have no guarantee anyway, but pills are a lot cleaner. You don't have syringes and things. Well, exactly. So. And, yeah, you're not you're not injecting them. Um, but yeah, that's one of the main reasons that the opioid epidemic is so bad because the, the street value of heroin is so cheap right now compared to everything else. Um, learn something new every day. So that's why I'm just like a thousand dollars a day. 
would be yeah. like, I mean, I don't know because I've not, not been in the heroin trade recently, but like, I would think no, that's a either. big old chunk. Like, like that's a lot. That's a I mean, lot. We are going back seven, no, um, 13 years, yeah. 14 years. But so, shit. We know nothing about the drugs trade. <laughs> From, except from watching like Narcos and Power. Yeah. Also, it's a safe distance. They barely left the room for eight months. Not eight we days. We don't get to that. Oh, dear sweet oh, yeah. Jesus. On July 18th, 2006, police finally tracked down Christine and Justin to the motel following the anonymous tip early that month. Police who went to the motel described the room as the worst scene they had ever attended. Uh. Worse than murder scenes, worse than major violent crime, and it smelt worse than the smell of decomposing bodies, according to the officers. That's bad. Yeah. The floor was littered with hundreds of needles and syringes. They had a puppy, so there were also dog feces everywhere, and the walls were just covered in blood from where they'd been, like, you know, injected and like taking the needles out and blood obviously spurts out of your arm. Jesus Christ. Yeah. They, Christine and Justin were described as being weeks, if not days, away from death, which is the natural conclusion if you've been doing a thousand dollars worth of heroin for every months. day for months. Yeah. yeah. And they'd been surviving mostly on heroin and Cheez-Its and Reese's Pieces. I mean, that's basically my diet minus the heroin, so. I was about to say, do we need to have an intervention? <laughs> sounding quite worrying. No. But Jesus Christ. Like, if it's worse yeah. than decomp, yeah, you know you need to take a shower Yeah, and stop using heroin. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, just like eight months worth of, of needles and blood spatter no. i don't even want to think about but it <laughs> also like so this is a motel it's not like a five-star luxury hotel or anything like that but what the hell were they doing that somebody was in there for eight months yeah Do, i mean did they have some sort of deal where like if it smelled that bad inside surely the smell reached outside at some point and like the rooms on either side yeah like, like, I mean, I know some motels, they do have, you know, like deals like pay monthly and things like yeah. that. But, but for eight still. months. still, And like, okay, there's no like duty of care as you would have if it was like a homeless shelter. But surely at some point. But even beyond that, like at some point, if you're the proprietor of this motel and you're like, wow, these drug addicts are stinking up the place and bringing a lot of seedy characters to my motel if they're you know barely leaving the house someone's bringing them heroin oh, so yeah. like surely at some point you'd say i want you to leave <laughs> yeah uh, or you would get police or even like social services or somebody something. involved because they need help in some way it's just absolutely insane yeah um so uh, once the police uh, discovered their hideout, uh, Christine was arrested and taken in by the cops. 
Um, Initially, she placed all of the blame on Chris. She claimed that the plan had just been to rob her friends, but he had shot them so they couldn't go to the police and that he had forced her to shoot Rachel, placing his hands over hers on the gun. Now, after a few days in custody, Christine finally admitted to her part in the murders, but she still maintained that it was Chris's idea and that he forced her to shoot. On July 21st, she was charged with capital murder and her bail was set at $500,000. But that was just half the story. The police still needed to find Chris. Um, Chris Snyder had moved to South Carolina in the spring of 2006, where he was living with his new girlfriend. In the days following Christine's arrest, Chris's family had contacted him to tell him about her arrest and that she had named him as an accomplice. At the end of July, police in South Carolina searched the house Chris was sharing with his girlfriend, but they couldn't find him, and so they moved out into the surrounding area. Chris was found on August 5th, 2006, in a heavily wooded area, and he'd taken an overdose of prescription painkillers and ended his own life. They did, however, find the two guns that were used in the murders, and both had Chris and Christine's DNA oh. on them. Even three years later. This is like, I think it was like three years and three days when Christine was arrested. But the DNA was still found on the gun. So clean your murder weapons. Or don't. Or don't that... But like, also, that's just not smart. I guess they were probably yeah. high, but still. Yeah. <sighs> um,. So Christine's trial began in October 2008. She pled guilty to four counts of capital murder. And for those of us in the UK where we don't have the offence capital murder, it has a couple of different meanings. So capital murder can include hate crimes, terror-related murder, the murder of a police officer, firefighter or paramedic in the line of duty, and murder for hire. But in this case, capital murder means that the victim or victims were killed during the commission of another violent crime, for example, armed robbery. So in the UK, it's referred to as aggravated murder. Which is an interesting. That is quite a, a, a wide-ranging umbrella term, isn't it? To include all those different yeah. Uh, types of... Yeah, I mean, I understood it to be you know, in the commission of another violent crime. Mm-hmm. And I only found out, like, the, like the first responders in a line of duty or terror, or terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, related murder or um, murder for hire when I went, like, to, like, double check. Yeah. Like, this is definitely what it means. Yeah. And obviously we don't have capital punishment in the UK anymore, which is why we can't have capital murder. Yeah. Yeah, see, um, my thought was always, oh, capital murder means you can get the death sentence for it, not, Mm. you know, nothing more than that. Yeah. Uh, But I think because obviously not all states have the murder, uh, have the death penalty anymore. Yeah. So I think you can still have capital murder, but it means like life without parole. Yeah, probably. Um, If it falls under these different criteria. Mm -hmm. I think. (laughs) Don't quote me. Yeah. We're guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If uh, if you are studying like law or you want to know your legal rights when you're planning a murder, don't use us as your source. No. Don't. I mean, and don't really. Don't murder. Don't murder. 
good, good, uh, good warning there. Don't murder. <laughs> um, uh, now because Rachel, Tiffany, Marcus, and Adelbert were murdered during an armed robbery, it became capital murder. And in Texas, this elevates it to a capital offense, meaning that Christine could have gotten the death penalty. However, she was only 17 at the time of the murders and juveniles cannot get the death penalty. So instead, Christine was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 40 years. Christine will be eligible for parole in 2046, when she'll be 60 years old. She has made several appeals, all of which have been rejected. But the first one was actually on the grounds that the court abused its power in setting her bail at half a million dollars. But the appeals panel rejected it, finding that there wasn't anything wrong with that as it had been determined that she was a flight risk and they upheld her original sentence and i'm gonna assume that's because of the amount of money she had yeah to hand she could have easily escaped yeah um her other appeals to reduce her sentence have all been rejected and she continues to serve her sentence at the mountain view unit in gatesville texas so what do you think about this one actually quite a short case compared to ones we normally do yeah i don't know i mean like it's pretty like when you look at it from you know from today's point of view right it's pretty cut and dried like it's yeah. it's and it make it all makes sense like here's the you know these two young adults teenagers who were wrapped up in drugs and wanted money and decided that, you know, they were willing to take any means to, to get those things, drugs and money and all that, and including kill their friends. Um, but because of that, like three year gap in between the killings and the sort of discovery of the lead suspects, like, I think it's easy to look at it now and be like, oh, well, that, that it's pretty obvious, but there's a whole good chunk of time where just nobody oh, knew yeah. what the fuck happened here. Yeah. And I I mean, Chris, Chris Snyder's suicide pretty much confirms his path. Yeah. In that I think, you know, he, by all accounts, wasn't, I mean, obviously he had issues because he had addiction problems, but he didn't have like mental health issues so far as being suicidal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a couple of days after you get told that you've been named as a a suspect in a quadruple murder. Yeah. You kill yourself. That's not a coincidence, is it? No. Well, and like what's interesting because he's dead that does add a very different element to her than testimony and to her story because she can say sort of without consequence oh well it was it was all his idea or he forced me to do do such and such and and it, it's the oldest trick in the book yeah blame the dead guy yeah exactly like which, when I was reading the Wikipedia page about this case, I was like, so she said that he forced her to do this, and it was all his idea, and, like, I just wonder 
how much of that is accurate uh, or if if it is like yeah. and i mean so rachel and tiffany were christine's best friends so obviously he had met them before mm-hmm. but and if marcus was actually involved in in dealing drugs, drugs yeah. at the time as well there is a chance that uh chris snyder would have known them mm-hmm. but she would have been the one to know if there was a lot of money if there was a lot of valuables mm-hmm. it's more likely that she would be the one to be like here's an oh, idea this is a g- yeah they're a good target yeah um yeah and like what do they say oldest trick in the yeah. book blame the dead guy exactly and like uh it's just so i don't know it's kind of heartbreaking because you've got these two teenage girls who by all accounts teenage girls are demons right but they've taken mm. this other younger girl under their wing and like really have been a really good friend to her yeah and then she murders that's them how she repays them yeah and that's that's the thing because in every everything i've read about it it's like they were the most popular girls in school but they were nice yeah which is like and that is uncommon yeah and like rachel's dream was like so she was working and eventually she wanted to go back to to school or go to college or whatever and she wanted to become a social worker yeah and you know she just wanted to help people yeah and Uh, another account i read of it was like people people who knew them were like yeah, they'd have just given her the money. Yeah. If that's if she said I need money, they'd have given it to her. Yeah. Um I mean if she'd said I need it for drugs, that's may, possibly maybe not. Matter, but, but still you know, just if she'd gone to them and said, I need you know, I need help, I need to lend some money, they'd have just given it to yeah. her. No questions asked. It's awful. Yeah. Um and um sorry. Not good. Go on. Um so one thing that I saw coming up again and again in the articles and various um, uh, TV shows that this case has been featured in is that everyone notes that Christine didn't change her story and admit to any part in the murders until she was going through withdrawal. Hmm. And so there's been speculation that it was kind of a just tell them what they want to hear Uh sort of thing so far as, you know, because for a while she just stuck to the story that Chris Snyder put his hand, put the gun in her hands, put his hands over hers, and forced her to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until a few days in, well, if you've been doing a thousand, well, let's say five hundred dollars worth, yeah, just split the difference. Save a split in it. Save a split in it between the two of them. If you've been doing five hundred dollars worth of heroin for eight months, you're going to go into very severe withdrawal very quickly. Oh yeah. Um. Although that's probably what's that well, that is what saved our life was being arrested. Yeah. So there has been a lot of talk as to whether like how sort of compassmentous she mm-hmm. was when she finally confessed, even though she still was like, Well, he did most of it, but he made he made me do it, but he didn't physically yeah. force me to shoot. Um but from what I can find out, that's never been like a basis of any of her appeals, huh. which is interesting. Yeah, it is. And it, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that the whole 
I'm appealing because the court shouldn't have set my bail so high is a bit out there. Yeah. So, I mean, she got life with with the possibility of parole. Yeah. After 40 years. So that 40 years obviously started when she was arrested mm-hmm. in 2006 because it's 2046 when she'll be eligible for parole. So, yeah, she served that two years because she was rejected. Like, nobody had the money to pay her bail. Mm-hmm. But, and there are a lot of things wrong with the with um, bail and plea deals and everything. And that is a whole <laughs> other story. Yeah. I mean, you just need to look at, well, you just need to go and watch, um, is it Time? Mm-hmm. The, the show on Netflix about Khalif mm-hmm. Browder. Yeah. To understand how messed up that is. Like, I had no idea. Something like ninety percent of the ninety five percent of the people in the U.S. prison population have never been to trial. Yeah, because they took plea deals or something like that. It's a uh, and cost the whole justice system will collapse if everybody goes to trial. Yeah, there's not there's not enough money for that. Um, so there are arguments against bail and things like that, but she had the money to escape very easily. Yeah, that's the thing. Like in in the in this sort of situation, like hold hold her on five hundred thousand dollars bail. Like yeah. she's murdered four people. I find it interesting that so because she was a juvenile, she was seventeen when this. I am shocked I actually think that they didn't try her as an like that they didn't sentence her as an adult. I never thought of that, but if. So a lot of the time, especially over here, if you try, like, you wouldn't get 40 years if you were a juvenile. Mm-hmm. You'd get a much shorter sentence, mm-hmm. which there are arguments both ways. Yeah. Um, but. I, I yeah. think that probably the reason that she got such a, a long sentence is that by the time her trial rolled around, she was an adult. Oh yeah, and like yeah, and and it's, it's capital murder, yeah. so they just can't. She just can't be sentenced to capital punishment yeah, because, because she was seventeen. She was underage. Um, so yeah, no, nah, I, 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 I am surprised. Kind of. Well, I don't know. Am I surprised that it's life with the possibility of parole? Kind of, yeah. Because if it if if the only thing that was stopping her from potentially getting the death sentence was her age, I would have assumed you would have thought it would yeah, be life without, without parole. parole. Yeah. So it's it's a good thing that she's in prison because that's ultimately what has saved her life. Yeah. And we don't really know what happened to her husband, Justin Rott. They divorced in two thousand and nine. Uh huh. So she was incarcerated by this point. He himself had a history of drug offences. And that is all we really know. Seems we don't actually know that much about Marcus, Priscilla and Adelbert Sanchez. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot known about them. Um, a little bit more was known about Rachel and Tiffany. But we just don't know that much about the victims, unfortunately. Which is too bad, because especially in a case like this, like, you know, it turns to the 
it turns into the Casey Anthony's and uh, and all that right it's like yeah. it's it's the focus on the trial and the focus on the killer and what really matters yeah, is the you know the victims but you had four young people also well the eldest was 21 so that's four people with their whole lives yeah, ahead of them exactly murdered for Drugs and money. money. Yep. And that is the case of the clear, was it Clearwater City Clear, murders? Clear Lake or, City. Yeah, that as well. <laughs> All the names it had. Uh, also, I hate that it's called the U- Ugly Duckling Murders as I well. I know. That's, that's so that's awful. That's just rude. So, yeah. So, that's the case. Um... Uh, thank you everyone for listening uh, come join us on social media um, Facebook, Instagram uh, we also have a Facebook group called Square Mile of Murder the podcast um, and let us know what you think about the case had you heard of it, have you seen the Forensic Files episode um, have you seen the composite sketches Yes, we will put them on the website. Also, yes. you can make your mind up if you think they're very accurate. Yes. <laughs> we do not. No, not so much. Um, uh, if you are enjoying the show, please uh, subscribe to us and leave us a rating and review. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes and on our website that will let you subscribe to uh, the podcast on your app of choice and just make it super easy. Um, you know, the more ratings and reviews we get, the, the, the more people we can have listen to us and, and grow this community. So that would be cool. That would be amazing. And if you would like to go one step further, you can sign up to be a patron of the show. Pledges start from just $1, which I think is about 8 mm-hmm. b per month. And you get all regular episodes a day early and a shout out on the show. And the more money you give us, the more goodies we'll send yeah. you. Like, we have, st- what do we have? Stickers, badges. Mm-hmm. Tote bags. Bonus episodes. Depending on how much you want, how far you want yeah. to go. If you want to, if you want to really just throw money at us, we'll, uh, we'll send you a t-shirt. We'll, uh, we'll list you as a, a patreon producer oh yeah which i actually still yeah. have to build that page the website <laughs> well it's currently only a yes, mom, isn't it? So. <laughs> but also if you're a, a, a patreon producer you do get to um request cases yeah. and most likely have them made into episodes that's already happened once with uh with the dear dear mommy producer <laughs> <laughs> yeah what was it was patty hearse was that the yeah one your mom requested oh yeah because it was her birthday yeah wasn't it? yeah it was um and yeah. yeah if you request it around the time of your birthday you even get like a nice birthday see there's so many perks but also if you just so like nice. message us on social media and be like you guys should cover this case we'll totally look at that too you can ask us for yeah. free it's okay <laughs> yeah see this is actually so seriously, I had this conversation with my dad a couple of weeks ago because he was like, how do you pick what you're going to do? And I was like, mostly it's just stuff that we've heard mm-hmm. of that we find interesting or there might be a documentary coming out soon about it. So it'll be like, good oh, timing, you know, 
Yeah, like we did that with the quiz one. Yeah, who wants to be a millionaire? Um, fraud case. But also thinking about this because obviously we did Stephen Lawrence last mm-hmm. week. Like we can only cover cases that we know about, and I think that's part of the reason why like hate crime and stuff doesn't get covered as much. Yeah, because people just don't hear about it in the news as yeah. much. So tell us, give us things if you want us to cover a case. Tell us, and we will. If there's enough information out there for us to talk, well, we could talk for an hour without there being a lot of information, <laughs> but... To, to give you, you know, solid facts a, on it. A decent yeah. episode. Um, yeah, tell us because we can't talk about what we yeah, don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, And we're, <laughs> we're actually just looking at our episode plan the other day and being like, huh, what should we do? What should we do next? So, like... Yeah, I mean, we do have the next month. We have so stuff planned, but out. beyond that, the, the the world is is open. There are many possibilities, so yeah. please um, suggest stuff for us. Because, like, if there's something that's been niggling at your mind and and you want to know more about it, uh, and not a lot of people have covered it, then yeah, we'd love to. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Um, We will see you all next week. Yep. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.